In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 32. Having endured hardships and persecution, Paul stands before the rulers and authorities to give an account of his faith and the transformative power of encountering Christ. But bound by chains, yet unyielding in his conviction, he becomes a living testament to the resilience of a life changed by the gospel. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, August 31st. It's the last day of the month and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, as we go into, what is it, the third to last uh, chapter in the book of Acts, I'm pleased to be joined by the Reverend Brian Wolfmuller. He's the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Lutheran Church of the Death in Austin, Texas. Good morning, Pastor Wolf Mueller, and welcome back to the program. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Well, it's uh, always exciting to have return guests. It's exciting to have you. I know that you do a lot out there for the kingdom. Uh, brother, any, anything interesting going on? Anything about your congregations? God's doing something special through you or them lately? Um, I know that's always the case, but just anything the listeners at home might be interested in. It's a great time to be serving in the Lord's Church, especially as—I I think one of the things that happened coming out of COVID now is that people who were, um, you know, on the fence about things, th- there's a seriousness that I think that developed during COVID times, and I, we're seeing that in our congregation and the conversation in our congregation. It's like p- people who maybe were in church once a month, but not in Sunday. They're there now every week. They're in Sunday school. They're excited about the Lord's Word. There's this, you know, this matters. We're w- in a world that's filled with lies and deceptions and posturing and everything. Where can I get the truth? And I know I can get it in the Word. And so there's a zeal for study of the Lord's Word, a, a joy in opening our Bibles and studying together. It's really phenomenal to see that. Uh, here in Austin. And I've been able to travel a bit this summer, and to see that also across the world, it's 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 great. It, uh, w- you know, when we look around, we are tempted to see all the bad things that are happening. And sure enough, the devil is raging against the church. That's it, like a roaring lion. But he's, he, you know, the, the truth that the Lord gives us, you resist him and he'll flee from you, is, is seen also. And so we have that great joy. So uh, so happy to be here in Austin, so happy to be pastor, so happy to have the Bible open and to continue to study it. Well, that's it's always a good day when we can do that, and I'm going to invite you to start our time together with a prayer, if you would please, sir. Sure, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Blessed Lord, who has caused, caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, and mark, and learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and by the comfort of your word, we might embrace and always hold fast the everlasting hope of uh, Jesus Christ, that you give us in your word through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, our text for today is really a continuation of a pretty long saga for St. Paul as he's been dragged from place to place to defend the faith. 
Um, I think it'd be a good idea. I like to do this anyway when we start the show, but it would be a really good idea today to catch people up, right? Uh, I don't know how far back you want to go, maybe all the way to 21 with Paul's arrest, but but bring us up to speed so we know what's going on. Yeah, it's an amazing thing to think that Paul is, he's so he's finished his third missionary journey and he's headed back to Jerusalem and all the way back. It's, it's like the Lord is doing everything he can to say, hey, not Jerusalem, Paul, not Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested. You're, you're the prophetesses, they bind their hands. They, Look, this is things are going to go poorly. Paul is headed there anyway. So he goes to Jerusalem. Um, he He's accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple. He's arrested, and there's they're about to stone him, and the soldiers rescue him. I have this picture of him. I don't think it's true how it would have happened, but I have this picture of the soldiers like holding Paul above their heads like he's crowd surfing, and he says, Wait, can I say it? Can I preach a sermon? And I go, okay. So Paul is, in my imagination, he's vertical and he's preaching the sermon in Hebrew to the crowds that are there to stone him. And he mentions the Gentiles and they just are enraged. So they lock him up. That's when the guys, uh, uh, they they make the vow that they're not going to eat anything or drink anything until they've murdered him. But Paul's nephew finds him out, and he tells the guard, and so in the middle of the night, they take him down to Caesarea. It's all very exciting until you get to Caesarea, and then, whoop, it seems like three, maybe three and a half years of Paul just sitting there in prison, which is, for Paul, got to be the most frustrating thing because he was on the move. But for us, it's such a huge benefit because it's those times in prison that when Paul didn't have a choice, he he was going to minister to the churches. So he had to do it by writing, and that's the source of a lot of the New Testament letters is those imprisonments of Paul. In fact, we think a lot of the letters that Philippians and Colossians came out of this imprisonment. Well, um, he's there. It's Festus who is um, who comes in during that time. He, he comes in as the Roman appointee. Think of like Pilate, but now, now it's Festus quite a bit later. And so Agrippa, who is the great-grandson of Herod the Great— I think it goes Herod the Great, then Aristobulus, or however you say that guy, then Agrippa the First, then Agrippa the Second. This is Agrippa the Second, who's this now great grandson of Herod the Great, this tetrarch of Galilee, comes to greet Festus as he comes to take over the governorship. And so he goes down to Caesarea, this center of the Roman government at the time. And he says, I've got this prisoner here who's appealed to Caesar. That was the privilege of any Roman citizen. They could appeal their case to Caesar. Now, if they'd ever be heard was a good question because there's a long line to see Caesar. But anyway, he's appealed to Caesar. So now he's, so there, so um, Festus and Agrippa II are going to hear Paul. That's going to be our chapter. And in the context of considering the accusation of the Jews that Paul was a, uh, a rebel and he was trying to overthrow the government. That's always the accusation that Christians are accused of, and it never sticks. But, but they're going to consider his case. He's going to make the case before him. And it's marvelous because Paul is, he, it's really a half-hearted defense of himself. He's not so interested in himself. He's mostly interested in Festus and Agrippa. He's after those guys. And this is how it is with Paul. It's how it is with the Lord. He's all, you know, the, there's all these great stories. I've been able to st- study the martyrs uh, uh, quite a bit lately. There's all these great stories of how the gladiators who were sent out into the arena to murder the martyrs end up putting down their swords and being martyred with them. 
because the Lord is always after his enemies through the suffering of his people. And so now the Lord is after Agrippa II through the imprisonment of Paul. Just like, I, even to think of this, I, I just, I can't get this out of my mind lately, is how the Lord was after Job's three friends through the suffering of Job. And we think the, you know, we think the whole time the book of Job is the devil's after Job, but it's really the Lord is after Job's friends, and he gets them at the end. Job makes a sacrifice for them, and they are confirmed. And the whole thing was an adult confirmation class for the three friends. So now we think the devil's after uh, Paul, but really the Lord is using Paul to get after Festus, to get after Agrippa, and even to get after Caesar. So Paul will eventually make it to Caesar's household. And when he writes to uh, Philippi, that's probably in Rome, he's he's writing that uh, even some of Caesar's household have become Christians now, so that the Lord is using Paul's suffering to advance his kingdom. Well, and it's interesting that that's sort of the phrase you should end on, because as you're talking about the Lord using Paul's suffering to reach these people in power, I couldn't help but think about how you mentioned earlier, Paul's, when he's sitting in prison is often, I guess that's when he's having time to write these letters. And of course, that's what's the Holy Spirit has passed down to us. And so, yeah, I mean, so I guess, and I'm sure the point was clear, God's using Paul's suffering to help us too in perpetuity. And who knows the things that, that you know, the Lord allows to befall us, how he might use that as an opportunity through our suffering to help someone else. It's exactly right. You, you got to think that, you know, here they, they would chain, like what Paul's chained to a soldier, for example, and that he's going to guard him. And we would look at that. If you, if you and I were chained to a soldier, we're like, oh boy, I'm bound. I'm stuck to this guy. I'm, I've lost my freedom. Paul would look at it and say, ha, I've got a captive audience. That's right. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> he's, I've got him now. Where are you going to go? I think the same thing, like, you know how there's all these worries that the, our phones are listening to us and we're being spied on and all this sort of stuff. And I, I think, you know what, as a Christian, we think, what? God be praised that someone's listening. <laughs> and <laughs> and right. we got a captive audience. It's just the same sort of, it's in the Lord's working. Everything is 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 flipped on its head so that, look, you. it's because Jesus is Lord and because he's died for our sins and because he's risen from the dead, then then everything is is wonderful. You you think about the, you know these guys that are trying to get after Paul. What do they get? What's the worst thing they can do to him? They can kill him. Well, to live as Christ, to die as gain. They can cause him to suffer. He says, "I rejoice in my suffering." They can throw him in prison. He's sending letters to the churches. He's preaching to the guards. He's preaching to the courts. And in fact, this is an amazing thing: is that the context of the Christian witness. It's not. It's not accidental that we speak of the Christian witness. And that that word in Greek, witness, is martyr. And those who were tried for confessing Christ were also uh, killed oftentimes. And so we have that idea of martyr as one who died confessing the faith. But it's not an accident that it's a technical term for what happens in court. Because when the Christian is persecuted, when the Christian is dragged into court, when the Christian is accused of, of being a troubler of the world because of our faith— then we don't have to have an evangelism program. The world puts us on the stage and says, testify, defend yourself. And so now you, you, you preach Christ to the whole world in these public settings precisely in the context of, of persecution. In persecution, you don't need an evangelism committee. In persecution, you don't need an evangelism plan because the world just gives you the stage and says, well, tell us what you believe. And, 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 and so I, the gospel goes forth. I got to interject because, and I know this is certainly your point, 
But this is an audience that you're given through persecution that they otherwise would never afford you. They would, right. you would never, you could never just ask to have that sort of audience. And yet in persecution, you end up with a lot of eyeballs on you that otherwise wouldn't be. Preaching to kings. That's the, I, I will speak of your testimony before kings. And that's the preface of the book of Concord, that psalm. And how amazing is it that during the Reformation, that's what happened. During times of persecution, when the gospel was being persecuted, the, the Lutherans were given this great privilege of speaking the gospel, even before, before kings and princes and all the world got to, got to hear the truth of the Lord's kindness and mercy. Well, let's get into what Paul says as he stands before King Agrippa II. Isn't that right? That's where we're That's picking right. up with him? Yeah, so let me pull up my Bible, and I'm going to read um, probably through about verse 11. Here we go. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." All right, well, that's obviously going to be his segue into talking about his conversion, but we're going to pause right there. So, so brother, his, it seems like his main lobby, uh, I guess aside from the general formalities, uh, is to say, I know what it's like to be a persecutor because I was one. Yeah, he, he's going to present himself as evidence, which is amazing, because normally you present evidence— uh, you present evidence for yourself, not the evidence of yourself. <laughs> so Paul's going to stand here in this court and say, look, I'm making an argument not for my own is innocence. I'm making an argument for the resurrection of the dead and for the, and, and I myself am evidence of the resurrection of the dead. It's an amazing thing. So that Jesus' resurrection has a, an effect, and one of those effects is me going from being a persecutor of the church to being an apostle and a slave and a servant of Christ. That, that, so it's an amazing thing that Paul is doing here. And, and we can notice a couple of things, too, because he speaks of being on trial for hope. Twice he mentions hope. And this reminds me of, of what Peter says, 1 Peter three fifteen, where he says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you, with gentleness and respect, you would think it would, Peter would say, be, be ready to give a defense for your faith, 
but he doesn't. Be ready to give a defense for your hope. And, and this, we should know that the thing that offends the world about the church is our hopefulness. And that the way that the devil would simply diminish our offensiveness to the despair of the world is to by have us participate in it. And, and I think this is a danger for us because I, I think the church is afflicted with a kind of hopelessness. We look around and it seems like things are getting worse and worse and worse. And we sort of, we just sort of despair and throw up our hope. Well, that's the pagan way of doing things. Paul says, can you imagine this? This is Ephesians 2 when he's describing the Christian before we were Christian, before when we were far off, when we we're still pagan. He says, you were without hope and without God in the world. Now, that's, that's a definition, and it means that when we do not know God in Christ, we are hopeless. D- and this is a really profound insight from Paul. It means we look at the world around us, the people who are in the world, and we can say that person who doesn't know Christ, they are hopeless. They have no hope. Or if they have hope, it's only a, a tiny little minuscule piece of hope. It's not the hope that the Lord wants us to have. It's a hope that extends only to their death and nothing beyond. They have this this tiny little constricted horizon of hope. Whereas the Christian, our hope extends past death to eternal life, past eternal life to the resurrection, to the new heaven and the new earth. That we have this boundless hope that the resurrection that Jesus accomplished on the third day will also be for us and that we will stand before him forever, clothed in his righteousness and, and his joy and his peace. That, and that is what Paul is defending. He's, when you're in prison, you're supposed to defend yourself, but he's not. He, does, he makes no defense of himself. He makes only a defense of the preaching of the resurrection, and he presents himself as evidence. It, it's, it is an amazing thing that he's doing here. So you talk about hope, and, and of course Paul, as you said, points to hope. He's on trial for claiming that the hope of Israel is fulfilled in Jesus. But, you know, we, we know that Jesus never really got a fair shake from the, from the religious authorities. In fact, that was one of Jesus' own complaints, that his own people weren't receiving him. Um, you know, my question here is, by the, this time in history, is you, you talk about, well, all right, today the world— hates Christians or or part of their animosity towards Christians is because Christians have hope. Well, is this part of the animosity of the Jews? Because by this point, perhaps they had given up on the Messiah and now we're just relying on the, on the, the laws of their religion as opposed to hopefully waiting for the Messiah. And, And so now without hope, they're upset at the Christians. I mean, how does that break down? I know that I know it's complex, but how does that connect to today? Yeah, it's a good question. There's, I think that we can find in the Jewish opposition to Jesus a number of motives. Uh, some of them are laid out for us plainly in the scriptures themselves. For example, the Pharisees loved money. Luke tells us that. And so they had a lucrative business of, of their Phariseeism, afforded them a lot of wealth, a lot of power, a lot of prestige in the culture. They had a political place. And they were worried that Jesus, as a political disturber, was going was gonna to mean trouble for them. It was going to disturb their, their posh life. That's part of it. There's also a, there's a deep religious conflict that between the Pharisees and Moses, 
and and it's something like this. It pro- because Phariseeism begins already with the uh, captivity in Babylon, where the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he he wrecks the temple and destroys the altar, and he deports all the people except for like some farmers to to till the ground and stuff. But he, you know, almost the people are gone, and so that now they're in Babylon or they're down in Egypt or Alexandria or whatever, and the Jewish people have to say, well, how how can we possibly be Jewish without the temple? How can we be how can we be Jewish without the sacrifices, without the Passover lamb? It seems, I mean, you read the Old Testament and Christians get kind of bogged down because there's all these instructions about the sacrifices and the priesthood and where all these things are supposed to, to take place and when they're supposed to take place and how. It's, it's, I mean, it's pretty detailed and, and we get bogged down in the details. But what we should ask ourselves is, is there anything accidental about all these sacrifices and about all this worship? And the answer is no. The Lord put this in place very specifically because we only come before him by blood and there is a preaching of blood and the preaching of the sacrifice is that there's a blood that is spilt in place of our blood and the Lord is pleased to accept it. That's that's the gospel. But the Pharisees answer that question in a different way. Can we be Jewish without the sacrifices? And their answer is, well, yes, it's the sacrifice of our own good works. We can please God by our behavior. It's a false and misleading dream. But the Pharisees had adopted that dream that God would be pleased with their good works and they could invent these good works in order to to find God's good pleasure. And the result is this pride. So Jesus comes along preaching the sacrifice. He he's identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the that's the promise, that that's the the title that hangs over Jesus' head in ministry. And this is completely contrary to the pharisaical um, imagination that wants to please God by its own efforts and works. And that remains also for us, because inside of each one of us is a little Pharisee. Luther calls it the little monk. There's a little monk that lives inside of us. There's a little... There's a, there's a part of us that says, if God is mad because of my sin, he'll be happy because of my good works, and that we will be saved because of our own efforts. It clings to all of us. It's the, it's the false theology of our sinful flesh, the opinio legis, the old theologians called it. And so all of us have this pharisaical impulse. And, and this is why Jesus and the gospel is so offensive to us, because, the, because when Jesus says, I am the Savior, one of the very not so veiled implications is that I am not the Savior. I am not saving myself. In fact, I can't save myself. That's why he had to do it. And so this same preaching of the gospel remains just as offensive as it was to the to the Jews, to the Pharisees, as it does to our own sinful flesh, our prideful sinful flesh today. As I'm thinking, as I'm listening to what you're saying and, and, and thinking it through, you know, you could definitely see that in something that it looks like humanity continuously falls into time and time again. Um, you made the connections with the uh, the medieval church and but even I'm thinking Lutherans coming over and we're struggling over well can we be a church without a bishop and and just it, it seems like we always kind of add things to the clear gospel gifts of God so that we can feel like we're doing something I I grew up Baptist and and while I can tell you 99 out of a hundred Baptists will tell you that God gave them the faith 
there is this aspect of when you give your heart to Jesus, you're, you're kind of pitching in a little bit <laughs> you can, and it's, 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 you know, it, you can feel it and you can remember that situation. So I, I see that, that, that sin, I guess, of adding to Christ popping up again and again. Do, do you think I'm right oh, on that? No, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, I, I was just reading, I, I also grew up evangelical and I, I remember being very impressed by this book, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I, I, it's been on my shelf. I haven't touched it in 25, 30 years. I pulled it back out and was reading it just this week. And I thought, oh, I, to, I was remember. It was like evangelical trauma because he wants to comfort with the gospel, but he just can't let it be a gift. It has to be something that we lean into or something that we accept or something that we do or something that we don't reject. There's got to be some aspect of our activity connected to the gospel. It always is creeping in there. We can't, when, uh, we, we, we're always holding on to something. At least I decided, or at least I didn't reject, or at least I didn't decide to not reject or whatever. You know, right. this little tiny bit of our own, our own something creeps in there. But if that tiny little bit, if that tiny little bit of me gets in there, it displaces Christ and comfort is lost glory is stolen, everything starts to crumble, assurance crumbles, it's it's just disastrous, the effects of it, but it's always creeping in there, creeping, creeping, creeping. So you're 100% right. I mean, we are, we are, we're made by God to be justified. I, Paul says, I consider that a man is justified by God, so that, that that's that's a definition. We, we are creatures built for justification, but but that justification should be that I rejoice in what God says of me, that I am a forgiven sinner. Or maybe say it like this, I'm a sinner that's forgiven. But we are always now justifying ourselves and trying to define ourselves, to, to be a law to, unto ourselves, to be our own creators, our, our own saviors, our own redeemers, our own sanctifiers. Our, we, we're trying to take that onto ourselves. It's just part of that natural inclination uh, that we have since, since the Garden of Eden, and it is bad. I'm thinking about also when you and I were at seminary, um, I don't know if they taught you this. Actually, I don't even know what seminary you went to, but uh, the one there's I There's two to, seminaries? Uh, yeah, there's the good one and the other one. Uh, and depending on how you respond, will let me know which one you think is the good one. <laughs> but uh, in any case, I uh, they tell us, they say, well, you know, in your proclamation, uh, you need to avoid making yourself the, the hero or the villain. Right, you don't. Want, we don't want to disqualify ourselves from the pastoral office. Um, not really Paul's style, is it? I mean, his is more about, as you said, he's he's using himself as evidence, but he's he's really being descriptive here that he was a murderer of these Christians, um, and yeah, he pursued them even to foreign cities. And I don't know if that means just outside of Jerusalem or if it means outside of his jurisdiction. Like like that's how. Fervalent, he was, you know, persecuting the Christians, but that's going to give us a little segue into him witnessing or testifying about his conversion. But uh, we'll probably have to go to break before we get to that. Anything else before we go to break? Well, yeah, let's just make this point is that Paul's persecution of the church and his locking up women and children even, he's using as a boast for how good a Pharisee he was. In other words, what when he would say later, when he's chief of sinners, this thing that is the greatest sin would be, in fact, the source of greatest pride for the Pharisees, which is an amazing thing, because we normally think, well, sin is sin across the board. we got to understand that there's different standards, and and the standard that is going to be one of the things that changes is Paul's own standard. What was 
at first his great boast becomes a shame. And just to put this too in our thoughts, is that I think that this stoning of Stephen really shaped Paul's conscience. And it even comes up now, uh, we're probably 20 years after the fact, and he's still talking about it. He was there when Stephen was stoned, the first martyr. In a lot of ways, his own sermon here follows the outline of Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin. And, and I don't wonder if the Holy Spirit used that first preaching of Stephen to call Paul to himself. And that blood of Stephen amplified the blood of Christ in the conscience of St. Paul. And now he's driven by, by that particular event, haunted by it, but in a, in a blessed way. And, he's, and so he's going to bring that up as he uh, continues his testimony before Agrippa. Well, that is something that we will look at when we come back from our break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, Pastor Wolf Mueller and I will keep on going through the book of Acts, chapter 26. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Brian Wolfmuller. He's the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Lutheran Church of the Deaf in Austin, Texas. And he's my guest this morning as we go through the book of Acts, chapter 26. Uh, but before we get back to the Bible, I just I want to take this time to say I'm so blessed. I really do. I feel so grateful to have each and every one of you who are joining us this morning as we study the book of Acts. And remember, if you have any questions or comments, you just want to say hello, you can reach out to me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. And when you write, please let me know where you're listening from and how you're listening, because there's so many ways. You might be listening over the air on AM850 in St. Louis or as a podcast online or on demand at kfuo.org. Or, and if you haven't checked this out, I encourage you to, maybe you're using the KFUO radio app available for Android and iPhone. But none of that. Let's get back to the Bible uh, Pastor Wolfmuller, before the break, you had talked about how, as Paul is making this transition, we know where he's transitioning uh, from talking about uh, who he was as a Pharisee into his conversion. Uh, it, it occurs to me that while we hear him say all these negative things that he did as a Pharisee, many of those listening might have been going, well, maybe this guy isn't so bad after all. It's like he's leading them into like concluding that, oh, okay, yeah, that's like me, so that I the impact of the of the testimony he's about to give is, I think, that much more clear. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So Paul is not indifferent, and this is the point, that that either Jesus is a blasphemer and 
all those who follow Jesus are blasphemers and deserve to be persecuted and, and imprisoned. Or Jesus is the true Messiah, and therefore his claim on us uh, is unassailable and stands. And so Paul's going to put, he says, look, we can't be indifferent to this question of Jesus. And I was not indifferent. This is his argument. I was not indifferent. I was, I was there when Stephen was stoned. I approved of it. This is three and a half years after Jesus' resurrection, there in Jerusalem, when the apostles and, and the deacons, and they were, they were preaching the word, and I was there to shut it down. And I had letters from the, from the Sanhedrin to go up to Damascus to put all the people there in prison. This, this is what I was up to. Now, that's an important claim, though. And C.S. Lewis would, I mean, really, all the apologists would, and evangelists would make this claim, is that the question of Jesus matters. It is the question that matters for all of us. What, what we can't do is just say, ah, oh, well, Jesus, uh-huh. I, I always, in our own question, in my own conversations with people, you got, I know I'm talking to them about, well, you know, I grew up in church, and this and that, and kind of religion, and yeah, God, and such and such, and angel one time, and all this stuff. So, but it's eventually, it's got to get to this question— what do you think of Jesus? That's the, that's the central thing. And Paul, um, Paul gets there. He says that, that Jesus, this question of Jesus, is the central question. And I hated him, and I hated all who followed him, and I was zealous in all these ways. And that's the business that I was about when I was traveling up to Damascus, and Jesus knocked me down and turned me around and then called me to be his own. Let's get into the next section, and I'm just going to read the first, oh, well, through verse 18, I should say, um, and then we'll talk about it. Here we go, starting with verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." All right, we'll pause right there. Oh, boy. So uh, Jesus, so like St. Paul, so loves uh, run-on sentences, apparently. <laughs> As Paul is retelling the Jesus' message, it's just funny how it takes on the character of, of Paul's style. Uh, but, yeah, take us through this, right? He, he gets an extremely up-and-close personal invitation to uh, <laughs> come to the faith. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. that. So this is the third time now we've heard this account of Paul's conversion. We heard it when it happened. I mean, it was given to us in the narrative. And then also back in chapter 22, it's interesting when in chapter 22, Paul intersperses these statements of Jesus with some more commentary as what was happening. Here he just kind of lays out, here's what Jesus 
uh, said to me. But can you imagine? So this, and here we also have this picture kicking against the goads. So it's like an ox or an animal that's being driven, poked in a certain way, and it's fighting against, and the more it fights, the more it injures itself. And that's a marvelous picture of our fighting against the conscience. So, you know, the Lord has given us all a conscience, which is a, it's like a judge that's in the heart, a court, little courthouse in the heart, and it and it's making judgments on the things happening around us, the things we're doing, things that are being done to us. It's that's good, that's bad, that's right, that's wrong, that's that's holy, that's evil, and it's that it's like an I you know it's like an alarm, it's like a smoke alarm if you can think of it this way, that uh, tells us something is wrong and it needs our attention. But most people don't think the problem. Most people confuse the, the, the pain of the conscience with the thing that's wrong. So the conscience is there to alert us that something has gone wrong. But most people think the problem is my guilty conscience. It's, if you can imagine your smoke alarm is going off, and instead of knowing, well, my smoke alarm is going off because there's a fire in the house, we think, oh, that smoke alarm is annoying. I've got to shut it down. And most people are living their lives just, they're just taking the batteries out of the smoke alarm. They're doing whatever they can to shut down the voice of the conscience. They, and they don't, they're not recognizing that my conscience is telling me this, this thing that I'm doing is wrong, or the thing that I'm thinking is wrong, or the thing that I'm feeling is wrong, or the thing that is happening to me is wrong. No, they, they say the problem is that my conscience is wrong. And, it, and they even go so far as to say, well, look, if I didn't know the Lord's word, or if there is no God who speaks, then then my conscience can be settled. So most people are trying to shut down the pain of the conscience bit by their own efforts. We, and we see a picture of that in the very beginning with the fig leaves of Adam and Eve, right? They recognize that they're they're guilty, they're naked. They say, boy, we got to fix this. And so they come up with their own way to fix it, and it's the fig leaves. But the problem is the fig leaves don't work, and then the sound of God in the garden means, well, we gotta, we got to cover it up even more. And, and so it is with Paul. I mean, it's like, I suppose what it is is, is if, can you imagine that if you're a kid and, you're, and you're, your father comes in to tell you to do your homework or something like that? And you turn up the music so you can't hear him. Well, he starts speaking, he starts uh, talking louder, and you turn the music up more, and he's louder, and you turn the music more, and he's yelling, and you turn the music more, and he's in your face, and you turn up the... But at some point, the conscience is so loud that you can't shut it down. You can't silence it. And that's the picture that Jesus gives to Paul. Why are you kicking against the goads? You, you, he, he was there for Stephen. He was involved in the stoning of Stephen. And then he's going to go one way or the other. He's going to repent on it, or he's going to double down. He's going to turn up the music. He's going to get letters. He's going to go to Damascus. He's going to be even more fierce, even more zealous, all to try to silence that yelling of his conscience that what he's doing is, in fact, wrong. And you kick against the goads, and you and 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 now your flank is bleeding, and you're sweating against it. And this is the case with most people. And it's but at some point, you come to this crisis moment where you're like, I cannot, I can't shut down the voice of the conscience. Uh, I can't, I can't drown it with, um, with enough booze. I can't, I, I can't stone it with enough drugs. I can't, I can't. Um, uh, muzzle it with enough good works. I can't, I just, I, that, that voice of the conscience 
cannot be stopped. And now I'm at a critical point. And the critical point is, will I confess my sins? Will I recognize that is, in fact, that, that I am the man, that I am the sinner? And that's the crisis point to where Jesus brings him. Why are you kicking against the goads? And it, it's, it's marvelous to see, and it's marvelous to see that this is not just with Paul, but this, this is with all of us. Uh, there, is a, there is a voice of the conscience that we're all trying to, the, a pain in the conscience that we're all trying to heal, but if we're doing it with our own efforts, and if we're doing it by our own management, if we're trying to, if we're trying to solve this problem with our own resources, it cannot be solved, and it just gets worse. So, making this case that his conscience is being seared literally by the Lord Jesus, and now he's going to respond, uh, or actually, he's going to explain to King Agrippa how he responded. Starting yeah. with verse nineteen, here we go. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And uh, I'm, I'm pausing just for half a second. I'm going to keep reading, but what, what happens next is one of my favorite parts. I don't know. I know. Anyway, it's verse, so great. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Well, except for these chains. <laughs> all right, so we're going to pause right there at the end of verse 29. Uh, th I mean, obviously two great phrases. One from Festus saying that Paul's out of his mind for his great learning. I've felt like that the longer I was in school. and uh, But then also King Agrippa and his pretty snappy comeback. So yeah. take us through yeah, these that's things. Right. Well, maybe even to pick up just with the words of Jesus, too, that led into the section, there's five things that he's going to set Paul to do. He's That, they're, he's, that in, he's now going to be a servant of the word. So he's going to open eyes of the blind. He's going to turn the Gentiles from darkness to light, turn them from Satan to God by the forgiveness of sins, and grant them the inheritance of the saints that comes by faith. Now, I, I think that's that little section, by the way, where Jesus is not only claiming Paul as his own, to, as a Christian, but also claiming him as an apostle, one untimely born, as Paul says, is really important because there's so often times we hear in critical circles that the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul are different. Here is the teaching of Jesus to Paul, which is sounds like an outline for every one of his letters that he wrote. It's just an amazing thing. And then and then Paul kind of goes on to say, now this is, so God called me to be his own. I wasn't disobedient to this. I started preaching. 
And that's why I'm arrested. Uh, I preached that all over the world until I finally preached it in Jerusalem, and that's why I'm here standing before you. Uh, I, I preach repentance, I preach turning, and I'm not preaching, and this is a key thing, I'm not preaching anything different than what Moses and the prophets preached. It's uh, There's a parallel to this in the in our Lutheran confessions where they make the argument that they're not saying anything new in the church, that they're not they're not innovating any doctrine. It they're just preaching what the prophets and the apostles preached. They're not this is they're not departing from the Catholic faith, but in fact articulating the Catholic faith. So this is what Paul is saying here. I'm not this is not a novel doctrine. The prophets taught that the Christ must suffer. They think of Psalm twenty two, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Psalm thirty five or or uh, Isaiah fifty three, by by your stripes we are healed. Uh, we considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. All these, and that he would preach light also to the Gentiles, even back from Abraham. Yet your seed will be a blessing to the nations. Or Isaiah forty two, where a light to lighten the Gentiles. That preaching is taken up by uh, Zechariah in the temple. It's a this is not a new and novel doctrine. We see it especially in Romans, where Paul, it, he, you know, this what what he calls in I think Colossians the mystery that the church would go to the Gentiles. He unfolds from all of these Old Testament passages in Romans nine, ten, and eleven, where he has all quote after quote after quote quote about the, how the prophets talked about how the gospel would come to the Gentiles, and you wonder why it was such a mystery. It wasn't a mystery because it was never mentioned by the prophets. It's like the favorite thing that the prophets would talk about. <laughs> but it was a mystery because they were covered by their own pride. Their eyes were blinded by the veil uh, that covered them because they were thinking of God's calling as something that was exclusive to the blood of Abraham. No. So so Paul talks about this from the Old Testament. There's nothing new that's here. And, um, and Festus, who's kind of just off the ship from Rome, He's like, I, this is this is crazy stuff, and and Paul almost ignores him. Like, look, Festus, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Agrippa over here. This great grandson of Herod, the Edomite, who was a proselyte, and it was a. Fa- it seems like Agrippa II was very faithful in in his support for the Jewish people. He helped rebuild the temple. Uh, he was helping reestablish the priesthood and the sacrifices there. Josephus, apparently, from my the notes I was looking over this morning, Josephus says that uh, Agrippa II was a was a huge supporter of the nation of Israel. But look, he he's the one that has to, he's still in charge when when Titus comes and destroys the temple in 70 AD, which is going to be, oh, what, 20, 19, 18 years from this point, maybe maybe even less, that he's the one in charge in Jerusalem when this happens. And so uh, so we can imagine what, what it would have been like if Agrippa would have been convinced by Paul uh, to become a Christian. Yeah, I, you know, part of me also, because I grew up, um, you know, in the tradition that I did, even this whole idea of, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I, obviously, Paul is using persuasive, you know, rhetoric. Obviously, he's wanting pe- them to consider these things. So it's not that persuasion's out of it altogether. But what a misunderstanding about what Paul's trying to say. He's not trying to convince him of something new. He's literally just pointing to Scripture, pointing to Jesus, and like, okay, you do the math. I mean, and, and, and I love the power play 
where Festus pipes up and, and Paul just kind of says, well, anyway, King Agrippa, because, you know, his message is for someone who already has faith, right? Mm-hmm. So he's trying to redirect misguided enthusiasm, not trying to summon it where there is none. Uh, that's often a pretty, uh, it's an easier job. But anyway, just a, just a fascinating thing that's taking place. And, and here we have, we have Paul defending the faith, even at the, at the risk of his own life. And, and he says he, he directs the attention away from the persuasion and to prayer, which I think is an important point. He says, um, I wish to God, whether in a short or long time, not only you, but everyone who hears me this day might become such as I am, except for the change. In other words, it's not my, it's not by persuasion that this happens, but by prayer. And he says, this is my fervent desire that I make known to God. And, and this is an important thing for us to remember, that the Christian life begins and ends with prayer, and our most important work is prayer. And especially when we pray, thy kingdom come, the work of evangelism begins and ends in prayer, because the Lord is the one who causes the growth. We can plant and water, but God is the one who gives the growth. He's the one that creates faith and sustains it, so that, so that it is his work to call Agrippa and Festus and everyone who's listening, who knows. It's nice to think that Paul says, this is, uh, I want you to be just like me, except for these chains. I don't want you to have these chains. Mm-hmm. Although it might, they, the chains might come, you know, if you believe as I do that you might be thrown in chains. And it also kind of gives us a hint back in the beginning when Luke says that Paul raised his hand to preach. It's like, well, he raised his one hand that wasn't chained. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> so he, he raises his free hand to, to, to preach while his other hand was chained to the soldier or to the wall or to whatever. And that's a that's an amazing thing to remember. Uh, and then just a note, this is a textual note, but I think it's very interesting, is that there's three times in the New Testament that the word Christian is used. It's it's once other in Acts, Acts 11, they, they were first called Christians at uh, Antioch. And then Peter uses the word, 1 Peter 4.16. But then here, Agrippa uses the word Christian, which is... And it's just important historically that that word already was known outside of the church as a word to describe those who were following Christ. So, so while the word is is unique and rare in the New Testament, it, we should understand from this text that it was a it was already becoming a common way of describing the followers of Jesus. Well, and oftentimes, I mean, save of course, Peter. You know, the the we aren't exactly uh, eager to adopt the name that they're using to sometimes mock us, right? So you think about even Lutherans who didn't become really known as Lutherans amongst themselves for a while. Not a hundred percent sure if that's what's going on with Christian, but yeah, it makes sense that it's just slowly kind of giving into okay, that's what we're going to be called. Because I don't think, again, another parallel to the Reformation. I don't. They're not seeing themselves as some sort of new religion that needs a new name and new branding. They they are just celebrating the Messiah who has come. Right, Christian. I belong to Jesus. I'm His. Right. I worship Jesus. This is the the, ba- the basic Christian claim. I worship Jesus, God in the flesh, raised from the dead, died on the cross for for my salvation, for my life. I I worship Jesus, and that's the simple Christian claim. And then th- that divides up the world. Do you also worship Jesus or not? That is what it means to be a Christian. Well, our text and the whole chapter concludes with the next couple of verses, or a few verses, actually. Here's 30 through 32. Then the king rose, and the governor, and uh, Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, 
this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So that's uh, that's kind of where we're ending it today, but still that raises a couple of questions about, you know, was Paul's appeal to Caesar, I guess it doesn't really matter, but it's like, was that out of uh, hubris? Was that uh, tactical? What, did it just, God just use it? I mean, what's, what's the conundrum he's got himself in? <laughs> Paul, you know, it's an amazing thing that Paul has certain rights as a Roman citizen that he will he will sometimes use and he will sometimes not use and he will sometimes use at the strangest times. So, for example, one of the privileges of being a Roman citizen is you can't be beaten before you're tried. So a citizen has the presumption of innocence, sort of. A non-citizen does not. So if you're a non-citizen and someone drags you in the court for stealing, you could be beaten before and then determined to be innocent or whatever. So but you imagine Paul and Philippi, this Roman colony there in Macedonia and Greece, and he's he's brought before the proconsul, and they beat him and throw him in jail, and then the next day they bring him back for the trial, and determine that he's innocent, and send him away, and that's when he mentions that he's a Roman citizen. It's like, well, Paul, you could have mentioned that yesterday and avoided the beating, but he well, he doesn't. Say, I'd be waving my passport as soon as they started hitting me. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He he claims the citizenship in order to to kind of. Well, so he can not leave the town. They tried. They beg him to leave, and he doesn't. He goes to stay with Lydia again he, because he's like, well, you know, you can't make me leave. I'm a Roman citizen. But he, so, so why does he claim his citizenship then? It's a similar question with the appeal to Caesar. It seems like in the middle of all the trials, he could have appealed to Caesar to get himself out of trouble. But he does, he waits till things calm down until he's about to be released, and then he appeals to Caesar. He, it ends up getting him a trip to Rome, which in which he's shipwrecked. And I think it's great that we call it his fourth missionary journey. He's a prisoner on a boat, and we call it his missionary <laughs> journey because it doesn't matter where Paul is; it's a missionary journey. Right. I mean, he's he's it's a missionary imprisonment. It's a missionary. I mean, everywhere. But Paul is he he just is he is it's, the mission. <laughs> it's obviously it's for tax purposes, right? So yeah, he's well, like he if anybody a, asks, uh, Jesus loves you, so I can he write gets, it off. He he does get a free trip to Rome, you know. That's well, I suppose uh, so. <laughs> as a prison, you know, in in the cell. So so Paul is where, wherever he goes, he's preaching the gospel. It's amazing to see it, but um, but he he claims it just at the wrong, seemingly just at the wrong time, if you were calculating things to his own advantage. But Paul does not use that calculus. His, he is not wondering what's going to benefit me the most, what's going to help me the most. If you, if you were to look at Paul's decisions when he appeals to Caesar, when he claims citizenship, and, and you were trying to figure out how it benefits Paul, it doesn't make any sense, because that's not the question. The question that Paul is asking is, how does it benefit the gospel? And if I'm, remember how he says, he says, if I'm, it, look, if I die, it's better for me, but it's for, for, to be around here, it's better for you. So that I'm not, and so, and in fact, to the Philippians, he says, so I think I'll stick around as if it's up to him. <laughs> so, so Paul's going to suffer. He's going to rejoice. He's going to be hungry. He's going to be full. He's going to be sleepless. He's going to sleep well. He's going to be free. He's going to be imprisoned. He's going to be He's gonna take. He's gonna go where he wants to go. He's gonna be dragged where he doesn't want to go. It doesn't matter. The point is, what's gonna be helpful for the preaching of the gospel, for bearing the name of Jesus before the world, and that's the calculus that he uses. And so now he has a sense, maybe even from the Holy Spirit, 
that there are some in Caesar's household who are ready for the forgiveness of sins. So he appeals to Caesar, and he's now after Caesar, and he's after his home. And it happens. He writes to, again to the Philippians that some in Caesar's household have become believers. So servants and and people as who are part of Caesar's administration also become Christian, and so begins the entrance of the leaven of the gospel into the into the power conversation in Rome and Caesarea and Jerusalem and everywhere else in the world. You know, we we began a discussion, and you brought up how persecution often um, provides an invitation to audiences you wouldn't otherwise had. I mean, perhaps behind the scenes, this is either what Paul's doing, as you said, consciously or just being motivated by the Holy Spirit. But, I mean, appealing to Caesar, despite how far he might actually get, um, there's probably a lot of important people he's going to be able to witness to along the way. So, you know, I don't know that he's inviting more persecution, but he's certainly taking advantage of what he's being dished out. Uh, anything else before we end today? We're at the close of our show. Well, it's going to happen in the next chapter when Paul's about to thinks he's going to die on the in the ship when the Lord says, nope, you're going to stand before Caesar. So the Lord is arranging all these things in such a way that that he would be glorified in the preaching of Paul. And that's that's also our comfort. I mean, we take there our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, let these all be gone. They yet have nothing won. The kingdom is ours. And when Christ has us, then we have him and his kingdom and his eternal life. And that's testified here to us in, in the life of Paul and Luke, who's there with him, and and all the apostles who, who gave up their life uh, so that they might gain it uh, in eternal life. And that's that's also for us. That's our comfort and our courage and our peace. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Lutheran Church of the Deaf in Austin, Texas. Thanks so much, brother, for being on the show. Delighted. Thank you, Phil. Folks, uh, tomorrow we're going to end our week with a free text first Friday. It is the first Friday of the month. It's also the first day of the month, and this episode is going to be all about baptism. We'll be joined by the Reverend Richard Davenport. He's the pastor of our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Smith, but Pastor Davenport is also the author of the new CPH book, The Baptismal River. Then on Monday, we'll continue with the penultimate chapter of Acts, chapter 27. We'll finish the book on Tuesday, and then Wednesday, a new series on First and Second Peter begins. So there's a lot to look forward to over the next week here on Thy Strong Word. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word.